take a copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Romans. The book of Romans in the New Testament is found on page 939 in the Bible in the chair in front of you. 939. Romans chapter 1. I want to read the first verse, or the first sentence rather, of this letter. Romans 1. We're going to read the first sentence, which encompasses seven verses in our English Bibles. So please follow along in your copy of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, we'll read verses 1 through 7, which is one long sentence. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Last year I clocked 40 years in pastoral ministry. And upon reflection over those years, one of the things that became evident to me as I evaluated is I discovered I have preached verse by verse or taught verse by verse through 40 of the 66 books of the Bible. But until now, I've never preached or taught verse by verse through Romans. And as I thought about that and then began to study in preparation of doing so, I was fascinated to learn how many other pastors have been hesitant to preach the book of Romans as I have been. I've contemplated it many times, but always never pulled the trigger to actually move forward in doing so. Kent Hughes, who was pastor for 27 years of the college church in Wheaton, Illinois, showed a similar reticence in preaching Romans as he served that church. He said that it was the power of the book of Romans that gave him pause to dive into it. Looking back, he wrote this, The study of it produces genuine excitement and genuine trepidation. Excitement because of the possibilities, the life-changing themes of Romans bring to us, and trepidation at reasonably expounding their massiveness. James Montgomery Boyce was the longtime pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He's now with the Lord And he expressed a similar kind of hesitation to preach Romans. He he said, it is a formidable and exciting task to undertake the preaching of this letter. When he stopped and thought about the fact that this letter has been studied by millions of people over 2,000 years, he said his mind just began to run back through history of all the ones who have studied and proclaimed this message. In fact, the the book of Romans has more commentaries written on it than any other of the books of the Bible. Boyce recounted in writing some of those in whose 
footsteps he followed as he embarked upon preaching this at 10th Pres. He said he was following the footsteps of theological and pastoral giants such as Martin Luther, John Calvin, Robert Haldane, Charles Hodge, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and many others. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He preached more than 13 years week by week through the book of Romans. Nearly 400 sermons that today you can purchase, but it takes up 14 volumes to do so. James Boyce went on and said, but it's not just the impressive array of prior witnesses that we find daunting. The real reason for our anxiety is the suspicion that a study of Romans will change us profoundly and unalterably. For that is what it was meant to do, after all. Over the first 18 years of his ministry at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota, John Piper said that he considered preaching Romans many times, but always backed off from the task. He says, I was like a mountain climber gazing up into the clouds around the peak of Mount Everest and then turning to lower heights. It has felt very daunting. Well, it does feel daunting to me to propose that we embark upon a study of Paul's letter to the church at Rome, but that is exactly what I am intending for us to start today. There are many reasons for us to engage in this study. Many good reasons. But the one most important reason in my mind is that we desperately need the message of Romans today. I feel that more deeply in my soul than at any time in my life. Romans is a letter that Paul wrote most likely over a three-month period at the end of his third missionary tour, probably in the spring of A.D. 58. Acts chapter 20, verses 1, 2, and 3 tell us that Paul spent three months on his way to Jerusalem in Greece. Probably those months were spent in Corinth. He he was on his way to Jerusalem because he had collected an offering from Gentile churches and was going to carry it to the Jerusalem church where The members were suffering because of a famine, because of persecution. So Paul writes this letter during that period, and he does so with a studied thoughtfulness. To write a letter this length would have been a slow and tedious process. In chapter 16, verse 22, he tells us that there was a, a, a secretary, a scribe by the name of Tertius, who adds his name to this letter, who actually wrote down the words. And so the process would have been something like this. Paul would have thought about what he wanted to say, and he would have dictated it to Tertius, who would have handwritten it, and then given it to Paul. And Paul would have gone back over it and made edits and made some corrections and some additions and maybe some subtractions to it, given it back to Tertius, who would have then written out a final copy that Paul would read and approve that would be the copy that would be sent to the church at Rome. When Paul writes this letter, he's not under a sense of urgency like he was when he wrote the letter to the churches of Galatia. You read Galatians 1 and you'll notice that Paul just skips the usual introductions and he gets right to the heart of the matter because those churches were under a threat. 
They were in danger of being capsized by false teaching. And so he, he writes as a pastor who is on a very important mission and he doesn't have much time. He, he doesn't write the letter to the Romans the way he does the letter of 1 Corinthians, that troubled church in Corinth that had sent him questions and that he'd heard about some of the horrific things that were going on in that church that he has to take up his pen in order to address. Unlike most of his other letters that we find to churches in the New Testament, Paul writes this letter to the church at Rome, having never himself visited there, nor, as far as we know, having anything to do with this church actually being started. Now, he did know several of the members of this church. In chapter 16, he makes this very clear. He greets several, dozens of members. He did know Aquila and Priscilla, or as she's called in this letter, Prisca, who came from Rome and met him when he was on mission in Corinth. Aquila and Priscilla had fled Rome during the time of Emperor Claudius. In Acts, 8, in Acts 18, we read about this, how Claudius issued an edict that all of the Jews had to be removed from Rome. They couldn't stay in Rome anymore. And so they go to Corinth. That's where Paul is. They're Christians. Paul's Christians. They're tent makers. He's a tent maker. And so they hit it off and they became fast friends. The Roman historian Suintonius tells us that that edict was issued by Claudius in AD 49. And so for the years that the Jews were not allowed to be in Rome, those would have been difficult years for the church at Rome. It would have created some real problems for the church, for their Jewish leadership to be removed from them for those five years. The church in Rome was probably started by those Roman visitors that Acts 2 tells us were present when Peter preached at Pentecost, who were converted and made their way back to Rome, and as Christians do, gathered together and established a church. And Over time, undoubtedly Rome being the, the central place of the Roman Empire, there would have been Gentile converts added to that church. And the church would have gone on for uh, 15 years, 20 years or so with that type of arrangement. And then this edict by Claudius comes. And all the Jews, including Jewish Christians, have to be removed from Rome. Think about what that would have done to the church. The earliest members were Jews, so the longest standing members of the church were Jewish Christians. Most likely, at least some, if not the majority of the leadership in that church were Jews. And now, by this executive order of Claudius, all those Jews have to leave, leaving a lot of holes in that church. A lot of the members were exiled. And so the Gentiles had to step up and Gentile men had to step up and be elders maybe when they hadn't been before and other responsibilities had to be taken over by the Gentile membership. And this continued on for five years until Claudius' death in AD 54. And then the Jews found it safe to go back to Rome and began to return, gradually moving back to that city and to that church where you can easily understand the potential conflicts what about those men who were elders? 
who had been exiled, but now they come back. Are they reinstated? What about the Gentiles who began to serve as elders? Do they step aside? Or do they continue to serve? Does the church go back to operating the way that it had operated five years previously? Or do those Jews who return, are they called upon and expected to begin to operate the way the church has learned to operate in the five years since they have been gone? Well, it's a problem. You can understand then why Paul in this letter pointedly at times speaks to Gentile members and then at other times pointedly speaks to Jewish members. He's concerned that they will be unified and that they won't let the tensions that could have emerged during that five-year period and all that goes into being Gentile and Jew by culture result in division in the church. And so he addresses them on the basis of the gospel and the unity that they have in Jesus. He emphasizes the gospel and reminds them how it's all about the grace of God. That God is the one who has reconciled them to himself by his grace in Jesus Christ. And so in this letter, Paul lays out more than anywhere else in a systematic fashion the fundamental teachings of the the gospel of God's grace. He shows how the gospel makes us right with God and the gospel empowers us to live live lives of joy, lives of holiness and peace with one another. And as Paul builds his case, which he does consecutively through the first 11 chapters of this book, he teaches us what is really true. That is, He teaches us reality. He teaches us the way things really are. He argues for the truth about God. The truth about ourselves. The truth about the world. The truth about Jesus Christ. The truth about salvation. The truth about the future. Brothers and sisters, we need to be reminded of these truths. More desperately today than at any time I can remember, we need a reality check. We need it in our personal lives. Everyone in this room needs it. Our world needs it. And this church needs it. We need to be reminded of what really is and of what God says is true. So often we find the world infiltrating our thinking. And the reality is that over the last 50 to 70 years, the world in this nation has seduced us with very fine-sounding lies. It has lied to us about the way things really are. And these lies have convinced many in the world, and sadly, to admit, many Christians in churches, to look at reality in false and distorted ways. So that we're not seeing things the way they really are. 
the way God says that they are. But rather, we become accustomed to seeing things the way everybody else tells us that we should look at them. The result is too often that we don't think rightly about God. We don't think rightly about ourselves, about our children, about each other, the world, the church, salvation, God's grace in Jesus. And where the lies have taken root in our thinking, then the plain teaching of God's word is often regarded as not only erroneous, but as offensive, ridiculous, even dangerous. Brothers and sisters, I want to emphasize it again. I'm not simply talking about the attitude of people out there. I'm talking about the attitudes that many of us inside the churches of Jesus Christ have also imbibed. Many who call themselves Christians today have been subtly seduced into thinking that Christianity is something altogether different than what God says it is. That's why I am convinced that we need the message of Romans now more than ever. The book of Romans has been used by God throughout history to make history, to change history. It's fascinating to read the history of Christianity at any segment of time from the time of the apostles to now, and you'll see the book of Romans coming up prominently time and time again. In the first few hundred years of the church, the greatest preacher in that patristic era was John Chrysostom, who was so overwhelmed with the message of Romans that he had it read out loud to him twice every week that he served as the pastor of Constantinople. Augustine, the famous African contemporary of Chrysostom, and one of the greatest theologians in the history of Christianity, was converted to Jesus Christ by reading Romans. Augustine had lived a profligate life. He was in his early 30s, living with a woman. He'd had several women. He'd given himself over to every kind of sexual fantasy you could imagine. He engaged in other acts of blatant immorality. And one day, he was in a garden of his friend who lived in Milan, near Milan in Italy. And while he's sitting in this garden, he hears children singing a song of play. And they're singing, tole lege, tole lege, which means take and read. And he never heard that before. And he thinks this must be a sign from God. So he goes to find scriptures And he opens the scriptures and his eyes fall to the book of Romans chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. And this is what he read. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. By the time he finished that second sentence, all of the prayers of his godly mother Monica were answered. 
He was converted to Jesus Christ. He turned from his sin. He humbled himself and acknowledged that he'd rebelled against his creator. And he looked to Jesus as his Lord and Savior. Augustine went on to become the greatest, most influential Christian teacher from the 2nd to the 16th centuries. In 1513, a Roman Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther was racked by a deep sense of guilt over his own sin. He was commissioned to be a professor of the Bible, and so he's studying the book of Psalms, lecturing through it, studying Romans. And he knew that, that as a priest, that as a monk, he's supposed to love God. But he told his father confessor, love God, I hate God. Luther thought God was a monster requiring righteousness that he couldn't give and nobody could give. And he thought, what kind of being is this that requires of us what we can never perform? And so as he's studying Psalms, preparing lectures, and the phrase, the righteousness of God, just kept haunting him. Every time he saw it, he said, I know you're righteous. I know you require it. I know I don't have it. He began to meditate on Romans 1, 16, and 17. The words that say, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. The righteous shall live by faith. And suddenly the scales fell off his eyes and Luther finally got it. He came to see that what makes the gospel good news is what's in it. And what is in the gospel is the life and death of Jesus Christ by which righteousness from God that he requires is given. What God requires, he gives. And he gives it not by us earning it, he gives it by his grace and we receive it not by doing things, we receive it by trusting Christ, receiving Christ. And when Luther saw that, it transformed his life. Listen to the way he puts it. He says, all at once, I felt I had been born again and entered into paradise of itself through open gates. Immediately I saw the whole scripture in, in a different light. This phrase of Paul was for me the very gate of paradise. Luther went on to be the great catalyst for the Protestant Reformation, that movement of God in the 16th century that transformed Western civilization. It's not too much to say that we're sitting here today in air conditioning because of what happened in the Protestant Reformation. God changed the world through Romans. On January 24th, 1738, John Wesley was sailing back to England after a failed mission trip to America. Wesley had gone to Georgia to preach to the Indians, and it was a catastrophe. He didn't know the gospel. All he knew was the rules of God, the law of God. And so he goes to these Indians and he tries to make them better people. 
tells them to, to quit doing their pagan stuff and start living the way that they should live. Be better people. And of course, that's impossible. It doesn't work. And so he feels defeated on that ship back to England. And on the way back, as they're on the Atlantic Ocean, they run into a hurricane. And the captain and the crew and Wesley are terrified because he said it's unlike anything he ever experienced. He thought the ship was going to be broken apart. But there were another group of Christians on that ship called Moravians. And they were calm, peaceful, praising God. And after the ship made it through the hurricane, this is what Wesley wrote in his diary on June 24th, 1738. I went to America to convert the Indians. But oh, who shall convert me? Who is he who will deliver me from this evil heart of mischief? I have a fair summer religion. Fair weather religion. Later, when he got to London, the Moravians invited him to one of their worship gatherings in a little chapel on Aldersgate Street in London. And as he went, it was a quiet and calm meeting. And at one point, one of the leaders stood up and began to read from Martin Luther's introduction to the book of Romans. And again, listen to the account taken from Wesley's diary as he describes what happened. At about a quarter before nine, while Luther was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that He had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Wesley went on to become a great evangelist, one who crisscrossed the British Isles in his day, preaching to tens of thousands of people this gospel of God's grace and was tremendously used of God in what we look back upon and call the evangelical awakening or the great awakening in the middle of the 18th century. Romans has been used throughout history to make history. And as I prepared to lead us in a study of this book over the next year or so, I prayed that God would be pleased to make history again here. In your heart and mind, in my own heart and mind. What this means is I'm praying that He will correct our thinking and ground us in reality. Reality. To simply see things the way they really are. And where we have been living in delusions, that he'll just explode those delusions so that we can come to see the truth. The truth about him, the truth about ourselves, the truth about this world, the truth about Jesus Christ. Well, let me give you a quick overview of this letter and chart the course that by God's grace, our studies will take us over this next year. I, I want you just to get a copy of the book of Romans out and as you flip through it or scroll through it, I want to point out some specific things. I have a 10-point outline that I just want to briefly give to you that will govern our studies over the next several months. 
The book of Romans reveals God's glory in his gospel of grace. Paul uses the word God in this book more than any other book in his writings. We see in verses 1 through 15 of chapter 1, his introduction. He announces himself in that very first verse as an apostle. An apostle that has been set apart for the gospel of God, which concerns his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul, initially, at the outset, to people he's never met face to face, many of them. A church he's never visited that he did not plant. He says, I want you to know who I am. I am what I am because of God. Because the gospel that comes from God, that's all about Jesus Christ. In verses 16 and 17 of the first chapter, he announces the theme that he's going to elaborate in this letter. It's the power of the gospel of grace. God's gospel has power and that power comes to us by grace. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why, Paul? Because it's the power of God to save everyone who believes. Everyone. Jews and Gentiles. Men and women. Old people and young people. You and me. And then in verse 17 he says, and here's how the gospel does it. It provides the righteousness that God requires. The righteousness that you cannot attain. Listen to me. No matter how hard you try, turn over however many new leaves you want to, you cannot give what God requires. You can't do it. But the good news is, Jesus has done it. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And it is received by faith. So that the righteous are people who live by faith in Jesus Christ. In verses 18 of chapter 1, down through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul begins to elaborate this message of God's gracious salvation that justifies us, not because of anything we do, but because of what Christ has done. And as he elaborates it, do you notice the first note that he sounds is sin? And so in 118 through 320, we have the wickedness and universality of sin against God. We have an explanation of why we need the gospel. The message of good news always starts with bad news. How the whole human race has fallen away from God. That all have sinned and come short of his glory. That there's none righteous, no, not one. He tells us in verse 18 that because of sin... Everyone in the world is ungodly and unrighteous and they actually suppress the truth of God, that truth that should be plain to them. Look at verse 21 of chapter 1. He says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Do you see this? This is the truth. Everybody knows God. That's what this verse says. Everybody knows God. Not savingly. Not in a right relationship with Him. But everybody knows God. That's what the Bible says. You know what that means? Atheists know God. Atheist says, I don't believe in God. 
Well, guess what? God doesn't believe in atheists. Everybody, this verse says, knows God. Well, why then do atheists deny God? Because of verse 18, what it says. In their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. They breathe the air that God gives them with lungs that he created for them. They eat his food and they derive pleasure from it with taste buds that he created. They're awed by his sun when it rises and when it sets. They go out on his oceans and are just blown away at the beauty and serenity of it. They stare at the nighttime sky and are mesmerized by the millions of stars that all belong to him. Every moment of every day, they live on his earth, experiencing laughter, joy, tears, hopes, beauty, because he has made us in his image. Everybody knows there's a God. So do you. So do you. You may have come in this morning thinking, well, not really religious, but I was invited or you know, whatever reason, I'm going to go to church. But I, I want you to hear me. On the day of judgment, when you stand before the God who is, you're going to be without excuse. What are you going to say to God on that day? I, I didn't know. You know what he's going to say? Yes, you did. Yes, you did. You knew. I showed you. I kept you alive. I gave you everything you had. And you just took the knowledge that I set before your eyes and you suppressed it. Why? Because you're stupid? No, because you're unrighteous. Because you want to be God. You see, all the excuses on that day of judgment are going to just freeze in your mouth. Because God has revealed the truth. And no one will be with any excuse on that day of clarity, that day of reality. And even the people who don't believe it now, who think, well, no, there's a lot of people that they just don't know God. They, you know, they've just never had the opportunity. They, they've never had any concept of, of the creator behind the creation. On that day, even those people will see the truth of Romans 1, 18 through 20. You see what I mean about reality? This is real. This is true. And this is what God calls us to live in the light of and to believe. Paul labors to make this point of the wickedness and universality of sin clear in this opening section so that as he puts it at the close of this opening section, chapter 3, verse 19, every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. And then, with that platform, he launches into an explanation of justification by grace through faith, which is the heart of the gospel. And he does this from chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 5, verse 21. 
Against the dark backdrop of sin, Paul assures us, no one can be justified before God by his own efforts. But he announces that there is a way of justification. It's the way that God himself has provided. The righteousness that God requires, he gives. That which he demands, he provides. He says this in chapter 3, verse 22. It's the righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all who believe. What this means, as verse 24 says, is that the only way that sinners can be justified is by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You will never be right with God any other way. You can't do enough. You can't promise enough. can't give enough. The only way is by faith in Jesus Christ who shed his blood for sinners. Here's how God accomplished the redemption that is in Christ. In verses 25 and 26, maybe the most important verses in the whole Bible. Chapter 3, 25 and 26. He says, God put him forward, Jesus, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How did he do it? How does God justify sinful people? How does a righteous God receive unrighteous people to himself? Here's how he does it. He takes his son and he sends him into the world to become a real man, to live a perfectly righteous life. And then he sets him forth. He intentionally puts him on the cross to be a propitiation to be one who absorbs God's wrath against sin. His holy, just punishment of sin. Jesus absorbs it and becomes a propitiation of God's wrath for our sin. He carries it away. We no longer have to be threatened by it because he's taken it and he's paid for it. And he's done it so that all who have faith in him might be justified. He's done it so that he can be just. He's not lowering his standard to accept sinners into his presence. He's just and the justifier of all who have faith in Jesus. That's it. If you don't have faith in Jesus, if Jesus isn't your Lord, if you're not trusting him, you will not be justified before God. You cannot justify yourself before God. Friend, that's why Jesus came. You might be thinking, man, I'm, I'm so bad. I'm, things I've done, I, I can't even sleep at night when I start thinking about what I've done. Jesus knows everything you've done. Renounce your sin, confess your sin, and look to Jesus and be assured that He shed His blood for every last one of your sins. That's why God sent Him forth. So that he might save sinners from sin. The next section begins in chapter 6 verse 1. It goes all the way through the end of the chapter. Verse 23. And it teaches us union with Christ. This is a result of the gospel. Being justified by grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. Does not mean you go on living alone. It doesn't mean that you got to get out of hell free card. So you can live however you want to. No. No. What it means is 
you are united to Jesus Christ. You have faith in Christ, which means that through faith, you are in Christ. Look at verses 5, 6, and 7 of chapter 6. He says, For if we have been united with him in death, of death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. To be a real Christian is to be dead to sin and alive to God, to be set free from the slavery of sin and willingly submitted to Jesus Christ so that you become a slave of righteousness. That's what true Christianity is regardless of what you may be thinking regardless of what you may have been taught. This is reality about what it means to be a Christian. Well, this result of being in Christ, this the re, being in Christ results in an ongoing war within our lives because though we're freed from the power of sin, we're not freed from the presence of sin and its reign is broken in our lives, but it still remains in our lives. That's what chapter 7 teaches us verses 1 through 25 when it shows us the role of the law in the Christian life for those who are justified. Look at verses 5 and 6. This is the theme of the whole chapter. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. That's the way we used to be. Now that we're Christians, verse 6, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. As Christians continue to mature spiritually, we continue to see how much more we have to go to mature. The deeper you grow, the deeper you realize you need to grow. So that with Paul, as he says in this chapter in verse 15, sometimes you're forced to admit, I don't understand my own actions. I I, I don't get myself or I don't do what I want to do, but what I do is the very thing that I hate doing. But a real Christian will also be able to go on and say with Paul, as he does at the end of this chapter, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's Christ. My righteousness is Christ. My hope is Christ. As a result, chapter 8 teaches us that Christians live a life in the Spirit He's the one who empowers us by the gospel. We know that verse 1 says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ Jesus, brothers and sisters, and you grapple with the sin that remains within you, grapple with it knowing you're not condemned. You're not fighting for justification. You're fighting having been justified with that stinking sin that remains. There's no condemnation. Look to Christ. Believe the truth that's in Christ. Uh, Look at the last part of this chapter because here's the reality for every Christian that we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us, verse 37, and that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, verse 38 says, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what it means to be a Christian. Held fast by God because of Christ. Chapters 9, 10, and 11, we have God's sovereignty, wisdom, and mercy 
set before us as we learn about the gospel in history. Here, Paul reminds us that the world is God's world. He can do with it whatever he wants to. He can do with us whatever he wants to. That's chapter 9. He's the potter. We're the clay. God's purposes won't fail. Indeed, they cannot fail. Therefore, he's going to save both Jews and Gentiles, and he'll do so in accordance with his promises. His promises aren't going to go unfulfilled. He wraps up this systematic portion of his letter by giving us a doxology in chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. And he teaches us this, that all truth is not only theological, it's doxological. If your theology doesn't lead you to worship, then get rid of it and get you some true theology. Get the theology of the Apostle Paul as he expounds it in this letter because it leads us to worship. And then in verses 12, chapter 12, verse 1, all the way through chapter 15, verse 13, we have practical Christianity set before us. We're to live this way because of the gospel. After 11 chapters of this heavy theological teaching, Paul calls us to live on the basis of the truth. Not just to be hearers, but to be doers of the word. Listen to the way he starts it in chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, on the basis of whatever what I've been writing, by the mercies of God, not by your own strength, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Live practically in the light of the truth. Live realistically in light of what God says is real. Then he concludes the letter in chapter 15, verse 14, down through the very end, verse 27 of chapter 16. He shows us his gospel plans and his gospel greetings. He reiterates his call to be an apostle to the Gentiles, his plans to visit that church, his hopes to take the gospel into Spain. We don't know if he ever did or not, but he writes that he wants to. In chapter 16, verse 1, he commends Phoebe, who is a servant in the church of Sincrea right outside of Corinth, who probably is the one who took this letter to Rome with her and greeted the church on his behalf. He gives an extensive list of greetings in chapter 16, more than anywhere else where he writes. There are 26 people mentioned by name and others by reference in this. And then in verses 17 and 18, after a warning about a divisive church member, he ends the letter with a benediction in the very closing verses. The book of Romans reveals God's glory in his gospel of grace. Shows us the truth about God. Who He is. Creator, sustainer, judge, Savior. Shows us the truth about ourselves. Who we are. Created by God, for God. Rebelled against God in need of grace. Shows us the truth about Jesus and His gospel. Who He is, what He's done, why that matters. How we can be reconciled to our God only through Him. Shows us the truth about this world that's always trying to make us conform to what it says is real and true. And it shows us the way of salvation by receiving what God requires that we cannot provide, but what He provides by grace in Christ.
When you trust Jesus Christ, God gets glory and you get salvation. What you need is provided for you and God is shown to be God. When you come to see Him through Christ, you come to see Him as He really is. You come to see yourself as you really are and you will be empowered to live by His Spirit and Word the way He calls you to live. Brothers and sisters, this is what we need. Church, this is what we need. Friend, unconverted friend, this is what you need. So what are you? Are you an open, secular, unbelieving person like Augustine? Read the book of Romans. And may God do for you what He did for Augustine. Are, are you a religious person? Zealous maybe like John Wesley? Like Martin Luther? But you know in your heart of hearts that whatever this religion is, it is not anything that enables you to breathe with confidence that God loves you and accepts you. Read the book of Romans. Be transformed by His grace. Are you a Christian that's just kind of gone along with the world? Thinking that what the world says is right, is right. What the world says is true, is true. What the world says is real, is real. Then have a reality check by coming to this book and reading it humbly, prayerfully, and asking God to show you the truth. It'll only take you about an hour to read Romans. I encourage you, read it. Read it this week. Read it every week over the next several months as we journey through it together and pray. Pray that God will make history here in our hearts and minds as we go through this book that He has used throughout all of history. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Romans. Oh, Father, would You not show us what You've showed so many people throughout history, as the book of Romans was set before them. Do it for us. Do it for us. Don't let us mark time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.